The thought-provoking podcast that explores the complexity of mental health through a lens that does not require a prescription. We will explore a wide range of topics with engaging discussions and personal anecdotes that provides a realistic outlook while actively engaging in our own self-discovery. Let's get ready to soar together. So that brings us into different interventions. <laughs> so there are a ton of different event- um, interventions. And we talked about this before we started recording is that, you know, there are tons of different interventions. There's more um, interventions that they are coming up with. Um, but these ones that we're going to talk about are scientific um, evidence behind of being um, very useful for traumatic um, events. Um, and so you often will hear someone when they talk about trauma and trauma interventions, or you go to a training or anything like that, you'll hear some of these being mentioned because they have um, evidence that they have been helpful in addressing different trauma events. So the first one is going to be prolonged exposure. And again, that can look a bunch of different ways on how they can implement that. But that has been really found to be helpful. Um um, prolonged exposure is something that they have used with veterans, um, and it has been helpful um, in addressing trauma um, responses. Cognitive processing therapy, um, EMDR is a big one. Um, I will say with EMDR, there are a lot of specialists who um, have certain training in doing this, and you want to make sure if you are thinking about engaging in EMDR, that you speak with your therapist about the number of sessions at minimum that you will need to complete um, before you actually agree to take on that. Um, I have heard of therapists who will have their clients sign like a contract of what their kind of like their interaction will look like because you don't want to start it and then stop it. And it yeah. is not something that you do in one session. It is like, you know, over a number of sessions. Mm-hmm. And so it is something that you do have to commit to. And as me and Dom has said previously, trauma therapy is not easy. Um, and oftentimes what I tell people you have to, it sometimes will get a little bit worse um, before it gets better. And so you have to kind of commit to going through it. Um, because you don't want to open up yourself raw. And like I said, a good therapist is going to pull things out of you that you may not even have known were there. And so mm-hmm. sometimes it's opening up Pandora's box and you don't want to open that box up and not be able to put things back in the correct place and close it um, and leave yourself in a worse position than you were before you began it. So it's, it's something that you definitely have to commit to um, and be accepting of. And of course, there's other therapies that you can, um, you know, partake in. Um, what we often say is you really want to work with a licensed professional to figure out what would be best for you because it's not a one size fits all. There are some people who would be really good at using EMDR and then there's some people who are not appropriate. Um, and so you, um, 
really want to work with the clinician because what I've had, and I'm sure Dom, you probably have experienced this, is sometimes people will read up on a intervention or they'll speak with someone who's had very good success with it. And then they'll come into therapy and say, hey, I want to do EMDR. Um, yeah. You really want to allow the therapist to explore it with you and talk to you about the pros and cons and what it could look like for you to see if it's a good fit for your situation. Because a good therapist is not going to want to um, cause harm. Um, They're going to want to work with you, but also make sure that things are appropriately tailored to your situation because you might have heard someone had a great experience with EMDR, but their situation, their prior experiences and all of those different things were not discussed in talking to you about how the benefits were. And so you may not be appropriate for that. So it's really important for you to work um, collaboratively with your professional to make sure that you are getting something that's going to tailor your need. Because like I said, trauma therapy is is very difficult and it can be very trying. So you just want to make sure that you're not trying to be um, situated with a one-size-fits-all type of mindset because that's just not appropriate. Right, right. And the other thing is, and I think we talked about this, is that trauma doesn't magically go away. I think me and Dom have both kind of highlighted these personal experiences and journeys that we've had in therapy. And, you know, I am still processing. I am still finding different things of how I was impacted by these different events. I think Dom is also experiencing that. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think the, the biggest takeaway is to be kind with yourself. And mm-hmm. and know that it is something that you could be processing and working on for a significant time. The difference is to really take inventory on how you're being impacted. Like we talked about that basic functioning. If you are not able to do your basic functioning, that really tells you that there's a significant problem and you need to seek immediate help. Um, and get connected. Whereas if you are, you know, able to do your basic functioning, but it's just things that may come up for you, um, but you're able to process through it. And although it might be challenging, maybe it brings up different feelings and emotions. That doesn't necessarily mean that you have to run back to therapy. It could Mm -hmm. be that these things just, there's things that are still going to come up for you because of that event. And that's fine. It's really about, you know, are you functioning? Is it causing you a disruption in your daily functioning, that's when you really want to look to get more guidance and more assistance. Um, that's what I would say about trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Good suggestion for sure. All right. So we're going to talk a little bit about informed, uh, trauma-informed care. And that's, um, I would say in the last, I don't know, 10 to 15 years, We've been as a um, as a mental health institution and the helping professions have been in some ways focused on how do we create trauma informed care for the clients and patients and individuals who we are servicing. How are we con- how are we considering creating policies and ideas that do help to put um an understanding of those individuals' trauma into the way in which we interact with them. And so here's what you want to know about trauma-informed care. Trauma-informed care 
means that we are shifting the focus from something being wrong with a client or a patient to understanding that something happened to a client or a patient. Sometimes we would say like, what, what's wrong with you? But instead of saying what's wrong with you, we are framing that question as to, to say what happened to you, right? That we understand that the approach is to consider a person and, and all of their experiences, right? And that all of those experiences are going to shape the way that individual interacts. Um, I, when I went through that uh, trauma and resilience training uh, about a month or so, or so ago, one of the activities that we did was when a client is presenting in a certain way, what might be the way you would uh, conceptualize that person's behavior from a trauma lens? That is trauma-informed care, right? And I think sometimes people might see that or hear that as like we're making excuses for people, but it's not that we're making excuses for people. We are attempting to see that person in their uh, in their totality, right? That we're, we are looking at the ways in which, I mean, we've talked in great detail today about big T traumas and little T traumas, right? And those experiences do play a role in how you interact with people. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean to excuse someone's behavior because you can never excuse someone's behavior. But I oftentimes, I oftentimes remind myself that understanding someone's trauma, it helps you to understand where somebody is. It doesn't mean that you're excusing or absolving someone from that. But I think when we can recognize that someone is going through something um, or they're behaving in a way that has been framed through their traumatic experience, then we can say, okay, how do, what interventions and skills do I need to, to learn and incorporate to meet that person where they're at? Right. Because again, they're not going to not respond that way without individuals understanding you know, understanding them through a trauma perspective and then saying, okay, here's what I need to do, right? To meet that person where they're at. Here's what I need to do to tailor my responses or my ex- my interaction with them in a way that would help them feel safe and comfortable. And so again, we're shifting our perspective from what happened to you, or I'm sorry, to what's wrong with you, to what happened to you. The second thing I want you to all to, to think about is healing. Healing is a major component um, of this, of this approach, right? This trauma, this, a uh, trauma informed care approach. Um, and this helps to effectively support someone's needs, right? When we think about someone's healing, we're thinking about this person becoming better in spite of those experiences that happened to them. And so because of that, we have to consider what are, the, what, what are most effective ways we can provide, we can provide support. Because those individuals, they need support. You know, healing does not happen by yourself. And if someone is coming to your establishment, your agency, your organization, um, and they're not healed, you know, the question becomes, what am I doing to aid in that person's healing? And what am I doing to uh, do more harm to their healing, right? Because oftentimes, and we'll get to this eventually in, in another podcast episode, but we also have some gripes with the mental health field, right? We have some some dissatisfaction with the ways in which the mental health field and the institution of mental health has negatively impacted individuals who are coming for help, right? You know, that while we are a part of this institution, we also are willing to critique it as well, right? And that there are ways in which that 
those individuals. I mean, and I think Deveron can attest to this. I've worked with clinicians who I'm like, why are you a therapist? How are you a therapist? How are you licensed doing the shit that you're doing? Right. Yes. You know? And so, you know, it's a reminder that sometimes clinicians also got to work on their own healing and they're doing the work, quote unquote, doing the work and they're fucking people up because they have not done the work for themselves, you know? And so healing is an important component to this approach. And we have to be considering how we are invested in someone's healing and honestly invested in their healing, even if we're not able to provide them support. That's the thing, because sometimes these individuals are going to, um, they're going to complete treatment successfully. They're going to complete their services successfully and true healing doesn't end when treatment is over, right? That's like the bare minimum, right? Healing is a, an ongoing process. And like, if you are committed to someone's healing as a, as a mental health provider or a helping perfect or someone who's in the helping profession, you want that healing to extend far beyond the work that you do with them. So, um, that's another thing that we want you to consider when you're thinking about trauma informed care. Also consider that trauma-informed care helps to promote patient engagement. It helps to promote patient involvement and their adherence to treatment goals. This is so huge, right? Because I think we've definitely made a shift in the mental health field where we are, not that we're not experts, but we I think we are moving in a space where we understand that the greatest expert in someone's life is that person. And we can't make decisions and, and make Um, we can't make, we can't make decisions for a client. We have to, we have to be strategic in the way that we are including them. That does promote patient engagement. You're not going to get a patient to be engaged if they don't feel connected to the work, if they don't feel connected to the treatment goals, or if they don't feel connected to the reasons why they are there, whether it is for, you know, peer support or whether it is for, you know, therapy or group counseling or um, whether it is, you know, because they are in need of, um, you know, uh, they are need, they are in need of resources, right? That part of their, their engagement is how do I make them feel like they are a part of this process? Because again, if we're looking at this from a trauma perspective, people who have experienced trauma have had a loss of control. They have had a loss of being or feeling as though they have had some agency, you know what I mean? And some autonomy over what has happened to them in their life. And so if they're coming to you and feeling like you're another person taking away my control, telling me what to do, they're not going to, there's not going to be um, any adherence to treatment goals. There's not going to be um, this patient who feels involved in the process. So it's important to consider how are you how are you utilizing the person's strengths to also include them in that process, right? Um, and 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 I will say that sometimes people who have gone through, I have worked with lots of clients who it has taken a lot of like restraint and a lot of self-control to work with them because while I do recognize their trauma, they're like, they're not nice people sometimes, right? But then I have had to I've had to remind myself that like, well, hell, I wouldn't be a nice person either if all these things happened to me. Like, I probably wouldn't yeah. be a nice person either. Yeah. You know, I probably would be, you know, standoffish and I probably would be 
angry. Like I would probably have all of these, all of those things as well, you know? And I will say the clients who come in with the most trauma tend to be my favorite people. They tend to be my favorite clients over time. Um, and so I just think that, you know, we have to be willing to not take those, their behaviors personal. I think in the, in the beginning of my time as a therapist, that definitely was hard for me. Like, it's not about you. Like these, these individuals who are coming to you for help, they are, you think they want you to help them? Like you think, do you think they want to, you know, they've already had so many things happen to them that have taken away their autonomy and control. Many of them were on probation. So 99% of them were there because they had to be, not because they wanted to be, you think they want another person telling them what to do. They don't want to be here either, you know? So it took me understanding that to say, okay, the girl, this ain't about you. Like, this is about how can you, again, how can you meet them where they're at? And that's a phrase that we often say in this field, but we don't often really practice that, right? Is, but how can you meet them where they're at and really try to include them in this process to get their full engagement? And that takes, it takes a lot of work. And I, and I think that's the thing is that trauma work as, the, as a person who is assisting other individuals who are, have experienced trauma, it's hard work. And if you, if you as the clinician or you as the individual in the helping field are not really prepared for the work that it entails, right? Because it is, you jumping through hoops trying to get, trying to get these individuals to buy in, right? Mm -hmm. Or to just trust you, right? And again, I recognize that girl, you shouldn't trust me on day one because you don't know me (laughs) and trusting people has gotten you where you are, right? It has gotten you hemmed up, right? So I don't expect you to trust me on day one, but on the flip side of that, it does make the work more challenging. And so you just have to be committed to recognizing that if you stay consistent and if you stay honest and if you do what you say you're going to do all the time, no matter what the hell they do, over time, it will start to, they will start to, open up and they will start to see, okay, maybe this is something I can, I can give a little bit. I can, you know, I can dip my foot in the water a little bit. I may not jump in here first, but I'm going to, I'm going to be committed to some of somewhat of this process. So, mm-hmm. and then lastly, this approach helps to eliminate re-traumatizing clients and it helps to inform all policies, procedures, and approaches through a trauma lens, right? So we want to make sure that we're not re-traumatizing people. Right. These experiences that individuals have experienced when they come to us for whatever reason, whether it's like I said, therapy, whether it's, you know, they need resources and services, whether they've just getting out of treatment, whatever it is, we want to make sure that we're not re-traumatizing them. So we have to be very cognizant of our policies, our procedures. Now, now this is a business. I get that. But the business, there has to be a balance, right, between how are we growing the business, how are we prioritizing the business, but how are we making sure that the clinical work is still astute? And that's always been my challenge in this field is that the people at the top struggle with recognizing that the business is not going to be sustainable without clinical, astute clinical stellar care. If you're not providing that, you're not going to have a successful business. And so oftentimes some of the companies that I had worked for were okay with having lackluster clinical care and they were confused when they weren't getting the business. Well, this is why, because you're more concerned with the money and you're not concerned with providing proper training, proper proper 
uh, supervision for these incoming clinicians because I, I work with lots of clinicians who had had 20 years and they still needed a supervisor. They still needed because they, they hadn't had, pro- we'll get to that. Cause that's, that's one of the questions. <laughs> we'll get to that. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's what informed and that's what trauma informed care is. And we hope that that kind of gives you an overall understanding of when you, when you, when you go to these companies and these facilities and these agencies and they, they prioritize informed trauma informed care if they're not following these ideas to a T, they might need some work, right? They may not necessarily be providing trauma-informed care in the ways that they should be. Maybe there are there's room for improvement, but these are the ideas that we want you to consider when someone says, oh, I'm trauma-informed care or, or this agency is trauma-informed care. You know, they may say that on the surface, but they don't always expect that the, that the, the, the consumer understands what that means. And so here is a blueprint for what that's supposed to mean when you are working with an agency who identifies themselves as trauma-informed care. Yeah. And I think it's important to understand that trauma-informed care is a buzzword. And so you will it see is. it a lot on being advertised on pamphlets and on websites. Um, but you also want to take inventory on what your experience is and how they yeah. actually interact with you because people can always put their best self um, and, you know, marketing materials, but it's really about that interaction. Um, and I always tell people when you have made the decision to attend treatment, uh, for trauma, it's really important for you that first session, even the first few sessions, that your therapist is really doing a good job on trying to form that therapeutic alliance before they have you dive into that trauma work. Because without that therapeutic alliance, that trauma work really will not be meaningful and will not be productive. Um, and so I always tell people to be cautious of, you know, when they are engaging in trauma therapy, how that looks when they first begin it, because that will tell you a lot. And you do want to be cautious about um, opening yourself up and um, committing to the trauma work, because as me and Dom have both said, it's not something that you do in one to two sessions. Um, anyone who is agreeing to do trauma work with you and they do not come up with a realistic treatment plan and what that's going to look like for you, that's a red flag. Anyone who has not tried to get to know you and form a therapeutic alliance prior to diving in. That is definitely a red flag. Um, And you really want to be cautious of that because you are in a vulnerable place. And when you begin to unpack your trauma, you are even in a more vulnerable space. Um, if, if anything, I would say when you begin to peel back those layers, you will find that a lot of that surface stuff is, um, your body's mechanisms of defense. And so when you start to peel back those layers, that's when your most vulnerable self comes up. And you want to be very, very, very cautious and and safeguard that vulnerable self because that's when damage can be done. That is when... Um, you know, you really want to just be protective of that. And so having that 
you know, firm therapeutic alliance is going to not just benefit the the therapist because it does make the trauma work that you're going to do a little bit easier, but it also helps that client to feel like a breath of fresh air that they can begin to be vulnerable and share parts of themselves that they may not have even um, been honest to themselves about. Right. Um, and so that's really important to to highlight. Absolutely. So the first question is going to be, what have you experienced professionally with someone who disclosed traumatic um, experiences? Um, I mean, a wide range of things, right? I mean, I think um, one of the things that I've seen most recently, um, or I guess I've been reintroduced to most recently, is people's use of humor as a way to... Um, I. I we know that it's a safeguard, right? It's something that people use as a defense. Um, but I, I have been reintroduced to this, um, this, um, defense, right? That people use humor, um, as a way to, you know, provide safety when they are talking about, um, those traumatic experiences. Um, I would say that people also are, um, when I worked at a drug and alcohol facility and many of the individuals that I worked with were adolescent or young adults and they were, um, on probation. So many of the, I would say probably 96, 97% of those individuals were on probation, um, or in the, the criminal legal system. And, um, many of them, I'd say, I'd say many of them saw us as um the ops, right? They 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 saw us as like you you work you work for the purpose, you work for the POs, like you know, and I'm like, I don't, but I also understand why they thought that because they were sent to us by the ops, you know what I mean? So I I got it. I mean, you know, and I think in the beginning of my career, I would take offense to that. You know what I mean? Because I was like, I want to help and I want to make a difference. And I didn't realize that like, this is not about you. Like they, they have, I mean, I have had so many adolescents and young adults who had already been on probation for five, six, seven. I had somebody who was on probation at 10 years old and they had already been on probation for 11 years. And so, I mean, so you talk about a system, you talk about a system that, that, who that thought that the best way to address this person's behavior at 10 years old was to put them on probation through the juvenile justice criminal legal system. Mm-hmm. Why would they trust me? Why would they trust me? You know what I mean? Like I'm in their from their perspective, I'm just another agency who's reporting back to their ops. You know what I mean? Yeah. So why would I think anything different? But I think I took offense to it because I knew that that wasn't the case for me, but I was, I was being very selfish in like seeing, thinking that my perspective was more important than theirs. They are telling me that they have had bad experiences with this system and this system told them they had to come to me or they were going back to jail. Why would I think that they would see me as like some warm and fuzzy, like yeah. person who wanted to save them or wanted to like aid in like their healing. They didn't see it that way because that was not their experience ever. And so, 
Because of that, a lot of those individuals were very standoffish. And they had also, many of them, so this was like, these individuals were either, uh, they lived in Philadelphia, they lived outside of Philly, so in like some of the, um, some of the, um, like the outskirts of like Philadelphia County. And so many of them also had had experiences of violence. They had had experiences of like uh, neighborhood violence. And so they were responding to living in like a, many of them had complex trauma, right? They were constantly going through trauma as they were trying to heal it, Mm -hmm. right? You know, I helped to create an anger management program that also, that essentially was trauma counseling. It was trauma group counseling, but we used anger as like the lens to help talk about it because you can't like tell 15 year olds that they got trauma. They're going to be like, yeah, okay, whatever. I don't yeah. know what you're talking about. Like, what are you talking about? And so um, many of them were dealing with that, right? I'm constantly going back into an environment that makes me hypervigilant, that makes me on guard. That is, you know, I'm probably more chances than not, my body is constantly in fight or flight mode. That's going to elevate, you know, all of these internal systems that are not good for me over time. And so a lot of them were experiencing that too, right? So those those would be some of the things that I would say I had experienced um, for people who, you know, and they, I don't think, and, and the thing is they were kids. So they never disclosed, right, that I am, this system has been traumatizing to me, but like it was, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That, that, you know, they were, their communities were over-policed. Their communities were, were without resources, not great schools, not great, you know, you know, not, not, they didn't live in environments where, you know, they had quality food. And I mean, there were so many things, right? So like when you think about, you know, when you think about what we did really talk about, well, I mean, we talked about natural disasters, but like a lot of these communities are constantly riddled with acts of trauma, right? Mm -hmm. You don't have quality schools. Literally in one of the towns that I I worked in where a lot of the clients would come from on one side, I mean, literally it was almost like our community town where it was like sharing a furrow, like across the street from each other. Well, this was very similar to Brookhaven was on one side of town. Chester was on the other side of town and literally schools, they were miles from each other. Not, not quality schools, violence in the community, all these things. And so you're seeing these other individuals you're coming to group with who live five minutes from you, who have all of these great things. And then you're going a literally not even five minutes away to having more challenging experiences. Right. So again, you know, you, these, these individuals were also riddled with like neighborhood and community, um, a disinvestment in their community. That's, that can be a, a very traumatic experience. So I would say that those would be some of the things that, um, that come, come to me off the top of my head for sure. Next question would be for you, Deveron. And the question is, um, what experiences did you face in the beginning of your career or presently in your work when working to support clients with traumatic experiences? Um, I would say... So I have done a bunch of different types of um, therapy um, jobs in different settings. So I've done in um, home-based, so community-based therapies. I've done um, inpatient. 
um, acute and then also residential. Um, and then now I'm doing more connecting people to resources, whether that be, you know, whatever level of care that they need. Um, so when I did acute inpatient, I worked on the dual unit. So that is where mm-hmm. individuals are coming in with both substance use and mental health um, concerns. And um, what I found was a good part of my um, clients were experiencing multiple traumas, but they would be experiencing homelessness. Some had experienced a long history with legal, um, whether it be incarcerated, probation, things like that. Um, And then in addition to all of those things, that was pretty consistent with my clientele. Um, because of their addiction journey, um, that also would open them up to different um, trauma experiences as well. For the females, there would be a lot of sexual assault, um, some of which was where they disassociated, um, um, domestic violence for um, both of my clientele, um, you know, um, interpersonal violence, just things like that, um, where they, you know, may have had a parent who was also struggling with addiction. Um, and then also where they had, um, because of their addiction history, not having a lot of social supports. Um, so Mm -hmm. being isolated from their family for, you know, whatever reason, um, And so what I often found was that there was a lack of resources to really address the different traumas, but also access to appropriate um, interventions. So at the time that I did inpatient care, um, Obamacare was just coming out and it was really big and it was allowing individuals who generally would not have had access to even be hospitalized, um, longer stays in hospitals. It was allowing them to have access to their medication. It was allowing them to get connected to um, a good therapist um, because oftentimes what I had found when I would try to do discharge planning um For a while, a lot of the people who took like Medicaid insurances were like community-based facilities, so community-based counseling groups. And it would be where the counselors may have been fresh out of college. Um, They didn't really have a lot of experience with someone who had um, several traumas, complex traumas. And so they really weren't, I mean, it, it was good to get someone in to see someone, you know, as soon as possible, but the care that they were receiving really wasn't going to combat what that individual was dealing with. Um, whereas, you know, someone who might have had private insurance, they could see a therapist who may have had their own practice or is a part of a practice that is doing more, um, 
you know, evidence-based practices. They have um, better access to um, continued education trainings. They're okay. staying up to date on the latest, um, you know, techniques and interventions. They have access to give um, these different clientele's resources. So, um, okay. you know, I had my one guy I talked about who was homeless and had been assaulted. His therapist actually gave him an essential um, oils kit to smell to help ground him. And so it was just something that she gave to him that was very useful. And he literally would have it with him at all times. But it was just something like that. Oftentimes, if he was going to a community-based, um, you know, program, the access to resources are not going to be where you can hand everyone like a soothing kit that they can utilize on their own. Right. And again, the the licensures, and I'm sure you're going to talk about this, but not having certain licensures and things like that. So I will say, like that was the experience that I faced at the beginning of my career is. Um, just the lack of resources that some individuals who really in all essence probably needed it the most, not having access to that um, and it being a challenge to find them appropriate care. Um, But also in, so a part of acute inpatient care is safe discharge planning, which makes it a little bit challenging when you have the clientele that I had, because like I said, they were, have the mental health and the substance use. And oftentimes if they're homeless, you know, you would have to have collateral, um, to, some type of contact. And oftentimes they did not have collateral. The family was not engaging with them. They didn't have a proper place to stay. And in the state that I was in, so I live in the tri-state area and homelessness is is a serious problem and there's not a lot of resources. And for shelters, when you're discharging someone, they're not guaranteed a bed. And so oftentimes they have to report by a certain time in and to get a possible bed. And if the beds are kind of taken up, then you're just out of luck. You can yeah. call this like numbers, like a hotline number, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be connected to resources. Um, and unless it's like a cold purple, which means like it's going to be like below freezing, um, the state generally won't open up additional resources if the shelters are all occupied. But the other thing about that too is that Oftentimes with shelters, it can also open them up to even more trauma um, because like sexual assault takes place at some of the shelters, um, bed bugs, um, the loss of property. So sometimes you're not able to bring certain items into the shelter. Um, A lot of my homeless population, they would have companions. So um, they would have like animals because that also was a sense of safety and control and you can't go into a shelter with an animal. Um, so like that would determine if they wanted to partake in certain programs. Um, but also like, again, this, the sexual assault that could take place, the, um, 
if you have a partner, let's say a lot of times you buddy up with people to kind of keep yourself safe. Um, sometimes the shelters are only for one gender. Um, mm-hmm. So males have to go to male shelters. Females have to go to a female shelter. But let's say that you don't identify as a male. Um, that can really reduce the access that you have to certain shelters and feeling comfortable. Um So that could put you at more of a risk. Um, And so like, I would say like that was something that I dealt with was like people who already were coming in with complex trauma and then having to discharge plan them as much as possible, knowing that you didn't, you weren't able to kind of like connect them with as much resources as possible because it just wasn't possible. But then also knowing that some of the resources that you were connecting them with could possibly um, open them up to experiencing more trauma. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you said a mouthful there because it's, 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 it's what we experience when we're trying to, you know, create safety for, or help create safety for these individuals, especially when, like you said, close to discharge. Um, And I know oftentimes I used to feel like, they're going to be back because this is just not going to work. Like, I just know it's not going to work because you're, you're setting, I mean, you're not setting them up for failure, but like so much has, has taken place. Um, that doesn't leave them with the opportunity to really be successful in this process because, Either there's lack of resources, they've burned bridges, they don't have the right medical care, they don't, they're not, and they don't live in the right zip code. I mean, there's so many things that make that hard. So yeah, I hear you there. Yeah. It also, sometimes it was setting them up for failure because um, the other thing was, is that if they were dual diagnosed, so oftentimes they had to present with Mm. um, a safety to themselves or others, as well as the substance use. Even though they were in a dual bed, which this is the peeling back the layers of the mental health field, um, a dual bed was more money for the facility. They oftentimes would be put on a detox detox protocol. So when their detox protocol was over, they would be geared to discharge and the mental health aspect was never fully addressed because they were Mm -hmm. only focusing on that detox protocol. And even though they were on a dual bed with Mm -hmm. both mental health and substance use, the discharge determination was a detox protocol. And depending on what that protocol is, um, I had a lot of clients who would admit admit on Friday, like late Friday night. And obviously I wasn't, I didn't work on weekends. So they might have seen the weekend social worker for just like an assessment. And then when I would come in on Monday, they would be on the discharge list and I would be having to figure out a discharge plan for that individual, having never spoken with them, having basically no time, you know, to really assess them and their mental health not having been addressed. And again, there are people who do abuse the system. And, you know, if you're homeless and you don't have a place to stay, um, you know, you may admit to a hospital. Um, but if you're trying to reduce 
recidivism in admissions, um, coming up with better discharge plans is really um, important. And I will say like that was something that I saw over and over again is people who, because they had been labeled as someone who struggled with addiction, no matter the mental health, um, the main focus was the addiction and they really didn't get the proper support and care that they would have if they had just presented with just mental health. And what I like to say is like people who abuse the system are utilizing behaviors that help them get their needs met, right? Because again, uh, you would oftentimes you would oftentimes see people who would come in saying they were suicidal when they really weren't, but they didn't want to be told that they couldn't get a bed because they knew that that meant they were going to be out on the street. You know what I mean? So again, mm-hmm. people do what they think they need to do to get their needs met, you know? And I, as someone who works in this field, I, I, I don't blame the client for that. You know what I mean? Because again, if we're giving them these options that are not really options, what the f- do we expect? Like, because I, I oftentimes look at it from like, if this was me who was didn't have a place to go and the only way I was going to get a warm place to sleep was if I said I was suicidal, well, I'll do whatever you tell me to do this, as long as I can get a bed. You know what I mean? Like, so instead of... And the is abusing the system because like I said... Because they want the money. (laughs) A a dual bed was, you got more money because I actually did the research. You got more money for individuals who have a dual bed than a detox bed. So we would be charging their insurance for that For the detox. Not giving them the full mental health resources. So... Again, it, it's where as much as we can say people abuse the system, the system also abuses the client. There's you know, Absolutely. So I think that Absolutely. that's also something to highlight. That is. It is for sure. For sure. The next question is, what have you observed as a clinician regarding other clinicians who are lacking cultural competency? <laughs> <laughs> and those lagging appropriate skills to work with this population. So those who have trauma um, experiences. So this one is to me very complex um, because for, for several different reasons. So I guess I'll say what I have, uh, what I have observed um in this field, when it comes to other clinicians who are not culturally competent, is I think that, I think the challenge is that we as a society and us in this field have been pigeonholed into thinking that cultural competency only means like race and ethnicity, right? That cultural cultures are not just about, you know, if someone is Asian or first generation Nigerian or African American or Native American, right? That that is a part of being culturally competent, but it's also being willing to understand that individual client, right? And to understand 
what they are bringing in culturally, meaning their age, their demographic, their gender, their generation that they're in, the part of town they live in, what schools they've gone to, their lack of education. Um, I mean, if they have kids, if they're, if they're married, if they're like, there's so many things that, that are, that a client comes in to session with that is, that, that makes them who they are. So I think that number one, we need to definitely broaden what we consider culture when we are teaching cultural competency, because it's not just somebody's race and ethnicity, um, but it's also what that specific individual has been bringing in, right? And what they're bringing into the session. Um, so I think that's that's number one, is we just need to be more diligent about broadening our perspective when it comes to culture, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and truly understanding what intersectionality means, right? That the more that somebody experiences these marginalized identities that they are going to suffer more. They're going to have more challenges. They're going to, they're going to, um, you know, they're, they're going to, they're going to need more. Right. And so, um, that's the, that's the one thing that I would say. The other thing that I would say, um, lacking appropriate skills. Sometimes we have to be willing to say like what you are sharing with me, what your challenges are, far exceed my expertise. They far exceed my wheelhouse or my, my abilities. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think the challenge with that is that, you know, many people get into this field because they're trying to feed their own ego. Right. Many people get into this field because they, they have this complex that they are great and that they and I, and I, and I wouldn't even say I probably did because I, I felt like I want to, I want to change. I want to, I want to help people. I want to say, but like the more and more I work in this field, the more and more I realize that like I learned just as much from the classes that as they probably learned from me. Right. So it's, it's not just that I have this, like, I, I have these great abilities to like fix someone. Like it's, just, it's, it's arrogant <laughs> because that's just, that's just not. That is not what you're there for. Like these individuals who are coming to you in some way, shape or form are coming because they're suffering. Mm -hmm. You don't need to feed your own ego by, you know, deciding that you have all these great capabilities that's going to just fix some of by that's not, you are there to empower the clients. You're not there to power over them, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that that is some of the challenges. People are there to feed their own ego and they, are not recognizing that our job is to empower people because the, the 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 goal really is that you do your job so well that they don't come back. <laughs> like that's the goal. You are you are working your way out of a job when you take on this role, right? You want to empower clients to have skills, to have capabilities that allow them to take care of themselves, right? And we get that, you know, like things always happen, right? You're, needing therapy is going to always be a thing as long as we live on this earth in this country. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, as a clinician, I think that it is the, the appropriate skill is how do I empower clients? And not enough, not enough clinicians are understand what it means to empower clients. And many of, much of that I think is, is multiple things, but I think a lot of it is they are feeding their own ego and they are they have not addressed their own shit 
and they are using the role as a therapist to get their own needs met. And that's just, it's sick. It's not, it's sick and it's, I guess sick is not the right word. It's, it is, it is, it's harmful. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It is doing to me, you know, we, if you're a licensed clinician, your, your ethics say that you have agreed to do no harm, right? Your ethics say that you are going to live up to always not, always taking the approach of not doing harm. And often, often too many clinicians are in this field doing a lot of harm and they don't even recognize it because they have not done enough work on themselves to work themselves out of that. So I would also say that that's some of it as well. Um, And I think that, I think more than anything, if you have to be willing to be uncomfortable enough to say that I don't think that I have enough skill at this point in my career to, to, to get you the help that you need or to, or to empower you to get through this situation. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that if more therapists would, would say that, um, I think that, I think, I think that those, those clients who are looking for support could potentially find it in somebody who is just, who just has more skill at that point in their career. You know what I mean? I think that we oftentimes think, oh, well, I've been doing this for 20 years. I should be able to do this. Or I should, yeah, we should be able to do lots of stuff in this field, but that just isn't, that's not reality. Yeah. Yeah. Like reality is that many of us don't have quality supervision. Many of us do not have money to have quality training and quality certification. Many of us, you know, work in this field and have been here for 20 years, 30 years, but we don't even have enough money to be licensed because it's an expensive field, right? That requires, you know, yearly or bi-yearly um, hours of certification, like hours of um, CEUs, right? So, um, I mean, that's, it, it can be expensive over time. And so I think on the flip side of that, some of the challenge is, that there is just not a lot of access to quality, quality, ongoing training and ongoing, um, ongoing trainings and, and ongoing, um, like, like utilizing, um, opportunities to just grow your skill, right? Just cause you, grad school is just a basic, it's a basic education, you know, set of 120, Oh, I'm sorry. My mine was 30 is 60 63 credit hours, right? That's basic. The real work happens when you leave graduate school, right? It's ongoing. You don't just I I, I and, and to be honest, I feel like while my my program was uh K CREP accredited, I feel like they need to uh do some upgrades cuz I feel like they missed a lot of shit, <laughs> you know? So, I mean, if I, I, I think those are some of the things that come to mind when I think, um, um, you know, quality supervision, I can't tell you, I just worked around quite a few quality, either I had quality supervision or I just worked around quality clinicians who I just, I learned from and I, I got to feed off of because they were just good at the job, right? I mean, how many of us have, but on the flip side, I've worked with lots of clinicians who were not good and I could have been feeding off of that. You know what I mean? So then how could that have been impacting my role as a therapist today? I mean, I think that that definitely plays a part. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so next question, um, 
Skill is really important when working in this field and with this population in general. And so what are some barriers to clinicians advancing their skills and growing their knowledge and expertise? I kind of talked a little bit about this, but I'm sure you've got some stuff to add. So I would just say one is the financial um, it is yeah. costly to, um, engage and, um, get some of these certifications and trainings. Um, one of the things that was one of the best things that ever happened to me was getting a job with organizations who actually paid for me to, um, renew my licensures, um, who were really big on, um, clinician growth. And so, um, I would be able to take certain trainings and they would reimburse me for that. And it wasn't until I had that experience that now, even in my current role, that was something I asked about during the interviewing process, because that was something that I was determined to have, um, And I know, you know, that I will not take a job in the future without that because I think that is so important and allows you to have access to resources. I will also say being a minority clinician, um, oftentimes we don't have access to certain resources ourselves. And Mm -hmm. so that can really be a barrier. And there are not a ton of minority clinicians who look like me, who um, have access to different resources because of the cost of things. Um, Like, for instance, I am licensed in several states. And a part of me being licensed in several states was that I... um, had different um, resources I had access to to do that. I had a wonderful stepmother who has been very supportive in my growth. My husband has been very supportive in my growth. Um, and so maintaining all of those different licensures um, requires me to do continuing education. And I will say it was so easier during COVID because I felt like a lot of clinicians had access to trainings um, virtually at a really reduced cost than we had previously. And Mm -hmm. that allowed a lot of clinicians to have access to things that a lot of people don't regularly have access to. And so there was a lot of like trauma trainings that you could attend, whereas typically um, they were very expensive. Um, Petsy has a lot of great trainings, but I will say that the price tag of a lot of those trainings are not something that someone fresh out of grad school or fresh out of college or even fresh within their profession or depending on, you might not even be fresh within your profession, depending on what your job is and the salary that you actually get. They may be out of your league as far as financially being able to afford it. Um, and it can range from several hundred dollars to I've seen some trainings that cost several thousands dollars, mm-hmm. um, especially, I mean, even with um, my licensure, um, I have an LSW in Pennsylvania and even the NASW, which is the National Association of Social Workers um, in Pennsylvania, they do a yearly conference and 
I have never been able to attend that conference because of the price that it was. It's so expensive. Yeah. Um, And I mean, now I definitely could do that, but now I choose to spend like my money on other things, like other trainings, but like, you know, even just having a um, subscription or membership to that is expensive. Um, I just joined um, the CEAP or EPA for um, oh yeah e association, and my job is reimbursing me for that. But if I didn't have that reimbursement, that alone would have been like two hundred something dollars, and. Mm-hmm. For some people, they're like, oh, that's not expensive. But I just said, I'm licensed in several states. I have to do those renewals. I have different certifications that I also have to do renewals. I'm a SEEP. Um, I have a SAP, which is through the Department of Transportation. That was several hundred dollars. Um, I'll have to renew that. And that has its own um, continuing education credits. And some of the licensures, they require specific CEU. So you can't just go and attend, you know, free ones. Um, so that's a part of it too, is just the access to different things. There are some people who make a really good amount of money and they have it in their contract or whatever with their agency that they get certain amount for continuing education. Um, and then there's other people who don't have that benefit. Um, and so it all comes from them. Um, and so it can get pretty costly. I will say if I had... Thankfully, all of my licensures and um, certifications all don't have to renew around the same time. But like if they all had to renew at the same time, I'd be looking at several thousands of dollars um, mm-hmm. to renew all of them. Um, so I think like that's a big thing. I think that there's trainings out there, but it's not readily available for every clinician. Um and and not only that, some people don't have the support from their agencies to even take off to go and attend these different conferences, to go and attend these different trainings. You know, not only is it that some of them require you to be in person, you have to pay for travel, you have to pay for housing, you know, all of these different things. And so if you don't have the access and the resources, you are at a... Um, limitation for that. Um, if you are a single parent household, even if your job is willing to pay for, you know, who's going to watch the kiddos while you go and further your profession. So I think mm-hmm. like all of those things are really important and you can attend free trainings. I'm not going to say that that is not something that is not offered, but I will say free trainings. What I have found um, sometimes they don't come with a um, CEUs or yeah. they are not as um, as well involved or evidence-based as one that does have a price tag associated with it. The speaker is not as great as those who do have a price tag associated with it. Um, and so like the other thing is sometimes with the free trainings, you could be behind, be behind the eight ball because other clinicians who had access to that, they were able to engage with it. And so it's a little bit behind by the time you got in. That's why it's free. So like, I will say like that also is a big thing. Um, the lack of resources, the lack of access to it, um, is, is definitely big. And, and as we know, like, 
with trauma, trauma informed care and just trauma interventions, there's always new people who are coming up with different interventions. And it does take a while to have that like scientific um, research behind it, which I think is very important when you are thinking about investing in your profession, making sure that it is scientific based. Um, and it's not just someone who said, look, this is a good thing. Like you should. Right. Um, but like, even with that, like you don't want to like a master of everything is a master of none. And so like, mm-hmm. I think like, that's the other thing is like with trauma informed care and trauma counselor is really, you want to kind of think about what type of trauma counselor you want to be. And mm-hmm what interventions you want to kind of like utilize with your um, population and not try to be a master of everything. Cause there's always going to be new things that are coming up. There's always going to be different techniques and things like that. And you can't master it all. And like you said, I think like being open and honest and letting someone know like it's out of your skill set, or maybe it's not even just out of your skill set. Maybe you guys just are not a good connection um, Mm -hmm. and you can refer them to someone else and there's nothing wrong with that. So I think like ego also is a big thing, taking the ego out to say like, look, you know, I don't think that we're a great fit or, or however you word it. I think that that's important, but I will say overall, I really think it's a lack of resources and support. Um, Yeah. For a lot of people, because if you are working for like a community based organization, um, if you're not working for like a big organization, the funding is just not there, right? Like mm-hmm. it's just, it's just not there. And I worked for an agency before where we were required if we attended, and this sounds funny. I don't mean to laugh, but if you attended a training, you had to come back and teach it to your colleagues. Um, in order for you to attend that training. Um, And think about that. Like, you are not an expert at this material. Like, you you literally just went to a training, right? And now you have to come back, and now I'm supposed to give you guys my expertise from this training that I attended. Like, One time? Yeah, like, and how is that suitable for someone else? And then does that mean that now that you attended my secondhand training, that now you think that you are an expert to go and implement this? You know, how how um, unethical is that, right? Like, Very. Mm-hmm. You know? And but that's a, their way to save money. You know, that's their exactly. way. That's crazy. Exactly. Instead of like inviting the actual trainer to come and train. Right. And pay them money, pay them what they're worth to have them actually talk to your staff. Yeah, exactly. But like, think about how often that happens. Right. And so we talk about people just not being competent of just like what they're saying they are like, again, this material of um, I just had a, a client who was looking for gambling resources And the number of places that were trying to advertise that they did gambling interventions because they wanted the business, um, when it's really like, that's such a very specific specialty. Like it's just like if you do like sexual addiction therapy, right? Like that's a very specific specialty and it's just not appropriate to try and make 
it be like a one size fits all because you're really creating like a disadvantage to that population that you are trying to provide resources to. So like, I would say like that is a big thing. And that's a niche, right? That, 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 that requires specialized training. I had a client who, um, based on what they were sharing, I thought that they probably would be better suited for EMDR. And I told the person, I said, you know, I can continue to see you, but I'm going to refer you to somebody else who can actually provide you with EMDR therapy because I under I know EMDR, but I've not been trained mm-hmm. and I, I can't really provide you with the kind of therapy that would be suitable for what you are currently looking for. You know, I can't, you know, and, and I didn't feel no ways about that. Like, this isn't about me. Like he, you know, this person needs some additional support that I know I can't provide, you know? And so I think you definitely make some good points about just how costly it is to maintain and to learn and to build on the skills that you already have. Um, I think that, I think we've both worked in like community mental health and community drug and alcohol. So I think we've gotten to, we, we've been able to witness the, I don't, I don't want to make this assumption that people who work in community mental health and community drug and alcohol are unskilled, right? Because I don't think that's true because we came from that world. And I think when I got there, I wasn't skilled, but I don't think any clinician is skilled when they come out of graduate school. Right. But I do, I, but I do think that I I do think that there is some benefit to starting there because I think that I've I've been seeing this trend lately where you are seeing all these clinicians who are getting out of graduate school who want to go into private practice. And I think that that is inappropriate. That's inappropriate. You don't have any skills. How are you how are you going to and 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 I've I've seen the argument that some of these clinicians are like y'all just want us to be broke like y'all were when y'all started and it's like no we want y'all to get some fucking skills first that's what we want <laughs> yeah. because working it's in it's important and you and and I don't know that you develop those skills in private practice starting out I don't I, I do I think you that you don't. Do it's, I think there's room? It's you not. Don't. It's really because not. You don't know. You don't, you don't know shit. Walking in your door and it's no. so inappropriate. And I am a firm believer that I think that every clinician needs to be able needs to have experience working in every different setting. I think that the amount of experience that it gives you is it is literally it's like, invaluable. It's invaluable. Like when I did community based. You have to literally think on your feet. Like you have to be able to say, oh shit, like I got to figure this out. I And again, and I'm not saying that that should be your entire experience because no, that you burn out very quickly in, in those type of settings. But the skills that I learned from paying attention to be able to read, um, you know, nonverbal cues, to be able to be situationally aware, to be able to um, meet people where they're at, to be able to hear someone's story and then go into their home and realize that 
we got to do some more work because this person is saying this, but now I'm seeing this situation and I realize that there's much more. Instead of talking to a kid about them being disrespectful, I'm going to their home and I see they're not eating. I see that their parents are cursing at them and they don't have a proper place to sleep. They're sleeping on the floor. That gives me so much more insight on who that person is and what they're presenting with. That I'm seeing them fully. I'm not just fully. seeing the things that they're saying. I'm paying attention to their nonverbal cues. I'm paying, like, you, the amount of just experience that it gives you, being in these different settings, dealing with different populations, you are able to really do patient-centered care because you realize yeah. that you are dealing with a complex person. Humans are complex yeah. people. And I couldn't even imagine... I think like if you are coming out of grad school and you're like, I'm going to go into private practice, I feel like that is so ill-advised because the thing is, is that one, you don't have the expertise at all because it's different reading something in a book than actually dealing with them. But it also goes back to ego that you think because of your life experiences and reading a damn book that you have the expertise to tell someone and sit with them with whatever they're dealing with. And that's not the case. Nope. That's not the case. There are going to be people who come to you and you are going to realize that they're not the client for you, just like you're not the therapist for them. And Mm -hmm. being able to be like, situationally aware and be able to do that inner work and like know it's not about you and it doesn't say anything about your clinician skills it doesn't say anything about who you are and your prior experiences i feel like that is like so important and if you're mm-hmm. not doing that you can ruin someone's therapeutic relationship to where they don't feel like they want to go and see a clinician and i think like yeah that has been, and I'm sure we'll get into this in future podcasts, but that has really been the issue in the past with therapy and people mm-hmm. accessing therapeutic, you know, interventions and skills is that clinicians have felt like they were the expert. They knew more than the client. They weren't willing to meet the client where they were at and they knew better. And then that ruined that relationship, that space to help that person process. And now that person has this idea of what therapy looks like, which is not the right type of therapy. And now Mm -hmm. they're going to tell their story because bad news travels faster than good news, that this is what their interaction and this is what therapy is. So then when they have a discussion with whether they have kids or loved ones or whatever, they're going to tell them about their bad experience. And then that's going to leave a bad taste in their mouth about therapy. Because mm-hmm. of clinicians. Clinicians did that damage. Mm-hmm. Yep. So yep. I think like that, that is so like you should not be it's able harmful. to be able to go into private practice when you first get out of school. You don't know enough. And it's okay nope. to say you don't know it's enough. It's okay. Yeah. But you need that experience because guess what? All the experiences that you had thus far is not the experiences of everyone else. Just because me and you have both experienced a loss does not mean you have any goddamn idea of the loss and how it impacted me. Mm-hmm. But yet you'll have fresh clinicians and even not even fresh clinicians. You'll have old school clinicians who will try to tell you what you should be doing and how you should be feeling. It's the same thing of how older, well-versed uh, clinicians in substance use. Mm-hmm. They have a very, 
This is how you deal with substance use. Yep. This is a one size fits all. If you don't, if you don't do it this way, you ain't doing it right. You're not going to mm-hmm. be successful. That literally takes away so many people having access to resources and getting the help they need because you feel like you are the expert and they got to fall in line. Mm-hmm. Inappropriate. Yep. We Inappropriate. we are doing damage to people. Literally doing damage to people. Because mm-hmm. we don't want to take ourselves back and say, like, you're the expert. I'm here to only be sitting next to you and walking you through this experience. That's what mm-hmm. a clinician's job is. That's what a good clinician's job is. Yeah. It, it's yeah. not for me to tell you this is what you need to do. Because I don't know. How, how could I know it's your life? I couldn't, I couldn't possibly know. <laughs> On some days, I don't I even don't know what the know. fuck to do in my own life. So how can Bro. I tell you? Like, exactly. No. And how do I know if that's going to work for you? You know what I'm saying? Like, how do I know? How am I telling you, you need to do certain things? And like I said, that kid who's misbehaving in class, he's hungry. But I'm about to tell you what you need to do. But your ass is hungry. And I'm not even getting you no access to food. Mm-hmm. You getting your behind beat every time you leave school. You don't got clean clothes. You got bugs all in your house. And I'm, and, and the least, I mean, if I understand all of that, then I also understand why you're doing what you're doing. And I'm, and I, and I am, I am seeing you as, as a whole person, exactly. not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not taking offense to the way you're treating me. I'm saying, what am I missing? Exactly. What don't I know? Exactly. You know what I mean? What is missing in this equation? What? what what don't i know what questions have i not asked right exactly. and i don't know that you can do that now I, I will say that there are some group private practices who do offer good supervision and all of that, that i just i think super, I do, if you have supervision yeah it's different if you have other well experienced clinicians who are also but you need that who are actually looking and reviewing your cases with you things like that but How often, I mean, right now we're in a mental health crisis. There are not enough psychiatrists. There are not enough clinicians. So what you are seeing is people coming out of school. I just saw the other day states, because we are such in a dire need of mental health professions, that they are trying to change the way you access a licensure because they need to roll out more people into the profession because they can't keep up mm. with the people who are asking for it. I have several great clinicians who have been booked up and not taking clients for months now because there's such a immediate need. Mm-hmm. So if you have someone who is fresh out of school and they do not have access to supervision, they do not have access. And I have seen it even in my EAP journey. I have seen people who are given a clinician's spot. And when I first started, you had to have several years of experience. You had to be licensed. You had all these criteria that you had to meet because it's very different doing assessment verbally over the phone where you're not seeing them. Right. Then if you're seeing them in your office and doing assessment to now they are hiring unlicensed people. Hell, I've had some people who get into the clinician role at an EAP who don't even have a uh, master's degree in social work or counseling. They just have a master's. Mm. 
So no clinical skills. Essentially. No clinical skills. <laughs> no clinical none, skills. None, no edu- none educationally or probably none. like, um, you know, zero employment wise. Wow. Khaleesi could be doing the assessment. Okay. <laughs> Not Khaleesi. <laughs> I'm telling you, but, but this is the thing. That's the thing that all it takes is for one of those clinicians to get into a role, to be doing an assessment with someone who has trauma, who has, let's not even say it's complex trauma, because those are difficult for even the most Very experienced difficult. clinician. Very difficult. For someone who has trauma and their interaction of not seeing that person, not even attempting to see that person fully, can do so much damage that the next clinician who hopefully gets that person has to do even more work to even form that therapeutic alliance to form that relationship of trust before mm-hmm. they can even dive into doing the work yep that's yep. what we're doing that's what that's what the profession has become yep yep so i would say like and, that's the issue mm-hmm. for sure and and i think that I think that we have to get out of this idea that years of experience, because when you said all that, right, about years of experience, license, education, all that stuff. And I think that still doesn't make you qualified. All that stuff still does not make you qualified. I don't care that, you know, you have 20 years of experience, you have a license and you have all these letters behind your name. None of that stuff makes you skilled. It doesn't make you skilled enough. It doesn't make you able enough to do the work. And I think that to me, that's the arrogance that I'm talking about is that you think that all those things mean that you no longer need to be interested in sharpening your skills, that you no longer need to be interested in growing as a clinician, learning, reading, right? Engaging. If you like for me, because I am so interested in trauma and relational trauma and relationships. I follow the Gottman Institute. I follow Bessel. Be- uh, I follow all of these experts in the field of trauma and relationships because I'm, I, that is, that is my interest. And so, and, and so what you will find is that those individuals who are experts in the field, they also can offer free trainings, free material or reduced trainings, right? I just purchased this guy named Terry Real, he he has this therapy he created called Relational Life Therapy, and it is a mixture of relationships and understanding your trauma. And he, I have a lifetime, I have lifetime access to like over forty hours of information, over forty hours of trainings. Now I don't know if I'll get the the, but it was like forty five dollars. So I was like, okay, you know what I mean? I'll have lifetime access. I can go, I can go through this at my own pace. He's offering like another training for $250. Now that's a lot. And I don't have the money right now. But again, these experts do offer things sometimes at reduced rates, you know, so it's, it, it's, you have having years of experience, having license, having certifications, none of that stuff makes you an expert unless you are continuing to do the work. Like you just have to be, you have to be willing to be, can be, committed to doing the work for the long haul it doesn't just stop because you got your license and because you're certified and because you have umpteen years of experience i i just think that any clinician who thinks that you know having a master's over a bachelor's degree in this field like someone with a master's degree means you're better than somebody with a with a bachelor's when you are not committed to doing the work to continue to learn 
you're not better, right? And, and years of experience don't make you better, right? It's, it's your commitment to learning and doing the work. That's what makes you better, not uh, some letters, not because yeah. you could pay for a certification because you could pay for a license. That don't make you better. <laughs> like, no. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that you have to be committed to continuing to grow and continue to build your expertise. But also I think the other piece of that is meeting the person where they're at. It's so important. And one of the things that I had a professor when I was in getting my bachelor's, he literally was like, I want you guys to know you don't know shit. And you need to keep that mindset. He was like a straight shooter. He was like, I mean, you need to keep that mindset for the rest of your life. You don't know shit. Because <laughs> when you have a client walk in your room, I don't care how many books you've read, how many trainings you attended, you have to meet that person where they're at and you have to let them be the expert. And you have to take that notion of, I don't know shit, to let them be the voice of reason and let yep. them tell their story and you meet them where they're at. And I will say that is the type of mindset that I try to go into in every session is you are the expert. I am here to hear your story. And my only job is to be a sounding board and to allow your words to bounce off of me and give you a little bit of clarity of what you're saying, because I don't know what it's like to be you. I don't. Just like you don't know what it's like to be me. And I know damn well, I do not want no one telling me about my experiences. Mm -hmm. So if I don't want that and it's not beneficial to me, I don't want to give that to someone else. And the other thing is that you do more damage. There are going to be clients who come to you like, tell me what to do. Tell me this. And a good clinician is going to tell you, I can't tell you what to do. I can help you process it. I can help you kind of think about it and and bring it out and and help you figure out what that word salad looks like. But it's not my job to tell you what to do. Nope. That is damaging. Yep. I can't tell you how many times I said, "Mm, what do you think? (laughs) (laughs) What do you think? It don't matter what I think, cause I right. when you when you lead a session, you gotta figure this shit out. Exactly, I, you ain't gonna be blaming you me. You ain't no. gonna come blaming me like I did. No, that. no, 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 you will not. No, you will no. not. <laughs> so let's. I, we can figure it out. We can t- we can talk about it. We can explore it, right? But girl, I don't know. <laughs> girl, I have no idea. You know what I mean? Yeah. What you should do. Because I'm not you. Now, there are times when I will say like, you know, maybe this could be an, if you're unsure, maybe this could be an option. Maybe this could be an option. But again, I am not telling you what to do. I can't tell you how many times I'm like, mm, I don't know. And, and I'm not saying that because, and I think the, the, the worry that new clinicians might have is I'm supposed to know. Yeah. I'm supposed to not. know. And you're not. You're not supposed to know. That's not the job. The job is how do you empower them to know? The job isn't to, and that's where that ego comes in. Because if I give them the answers and then things pan out for them, then oh, I'm yeah. this magical therapist. Like, no, you're, you're, you I are. I my job. You are further doing harm because they are going to, they are always going to rely on someone else to give them the answer. You have exactly. to empower them to figure this shit out. And that ain't going to be no walk in the park. And you got to be able to 
I think the challenge is their new clinicians or just clinicians in general being able to hold that discomfort that it feels to tell a client, I don't know. I know for me, because I struggle with the perfectionism stuff, I was afraid to not know what the fuck. I did not want clients thinking I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. And for real, for real, I didn't. I didn't know shit. (laughs) I really, I didn't know anything. Literally. And I wasn't giving myself the grace to understand, girl, how could you know anything? You ain't been a therapist but a minute. (laughs) And again, there are days I've been in this field. I've been licensed for seven years. I've been in the field for 10. And there are still days when I don't know what I'm doing, but I I feel confident enough to say, I don't know. Like, I really don't know. what I, I don't know what the answer is. You know, I don't know how to direct them. I don't know how to support them. Like, I... I don't feel this sense of um, like, I don't feel this sense of like shame to, to, to show up and to say in front of a whole bunch of other clinicians that I need help. I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know what, what direction should I take? How should I support them? What should I be suggest? Like, I, I don't feel that sense of shame anymore that I felt before, but I felt shame. I felt like I'm supposed to know I'm a therapist. I'm supposed to know, but it's like, you, you can't know. You can't know because um, even if you've been a a clinician for 30 years, you can't know because it's, it's every client is different. You can't know. And so I think that that that's the thing is, is helping clinicians feel to, to learn how to, to, to sit in that discomfort, right? The the same shit that we tell our clients to do, we can't even do. You need to sit in that discomfort and accept that this client wants something that you can't give them because that is not your role. It's not your job to do that, you know? So, yeah. And it feels good when someone comes to you later on and they are able to talk about what they have done, right? Because I think like as a clinician, I've learned a long time ago, I am just here to, to sit and let people tell me their stories. That's that's my role. Sit mm-hmm. and let people tell me their stories and give them space to help them figure it out. Um, yep. And I think like for me, one of the things I love about that and and breaking it down to that being very simple is it's such a rewarding thing to allow mm-hmm. people to feel comfortable enough to share their story with you and feel comfortable enough to unpack it with you. Um I think that that is just like the best part of our profession. Like I it think is. that that is, it's so amazing because you know, like if someone is able to do that with you, they'll be able to do that in the future for themselves. Because as mm-hmm. we said in previous podcasts, you know, just because you have one experience doesn't mean that life just stops and you don't have any more experiences. And so really giving them that skill and giving them skills to process what has happened to them allows them to have those skills for when it's necessary in the future. And I think like that's the best, the best thing that you could do. And and honestly, that's really what I look for in a relationship with a client is giving them that space to be vulnerable and empower themselves. Because yeah. really and truthfully, that's what therapy is. It's it's helping people to feel empowered on very difficult situations um, and mm-hmm. very difficult things to deal with. Um, 
And so you're literally giving people the power back to have some sense of control um, in their life that at times feels unmanageable and feels so out of control. So I feel like if you can keep that as a part to be thankful for, um, it helps you take away that ego. It helps you take away that feeling um, needing to be responsible and having that savior complex. Um, mm-hmm. which I think some, some people who get into the field come into it with, and then other people have been in certain situations where they've helped someone and they develop it. So I think like constantly checking to make sure you don't develop that savior complex is really important because it allows you to continue to do the necessary work with individuals, um, which is why we all really should have gotten into the profession for. Yeah. And I, and I think, I think that's, that's the importance of empowering clients, right? The importance of empowering them is to help them recognize that they have the capability already. Mm-hmm. They have it. They have it. They don't know they don't have, they don't know they have it. And it's our job to, when we're looking at empowering them. And this is why this, this is what honestly helped me when I, when I figured out that if I see a client on an individual basis, one hour a week for a month, I see them four hours out of a month. How could I possibly think that my little measly ass session going to somehow make them some shining star? How could I think that? How could I think that if I'm doing group therapy for nine hours a week in a month, that 36 hours out of a month, that my little measly ass three hour group is somehow changing their lives in these magnificent I'm not I don't want to minimize the role that I have but the real the real work happens outside of therapy though. Yeah. Like that's when it happens. And that and honestly that happens that happens when you're not present. So your job is to help them understand that the real work happens when you leave my session. When you leave the session that is when the real work happens and we can talk about what happens outside, inside the session, but to think that your little measly ass group or your little measly ass session is somehow making real significant waves when someone, what, how many hours it is in a week? 128, 168 is that many hours in a week. You see that person one hour a week. You think that's doing something? Yeah. Like get off your high horse. It's not doing shit. Yeah. You need to be helping them figure out how to how to get their needs met outside of that session because if you don't, they are going to be dependent on you. And let's be clear, some therapists want that. That's the problem. Some of them want that. Absolutely. And that's the problem. Yeah. And that's the problem. Yeah. So Anyway, that's that's a mouthful because there's some clinicians who be like, I've been seeing this client for years now. And you're like, Like, motherfucker, you've been seeing it for years? (laughs) What are they getting at this point, my love? Like, what are they getting? Or what are you getting? (laughs) Or what are you getting? (laughs) Right. The real question is, what are you getting? Because you're benefiting more at this point than they are. Exactly. You got to let them go. You know what I mean? You got to you got to figure out how to let them go, you know? So, anyway, we could do a whole episode <laughs> on unpacking these very unwell clinicians and and yes. and yeah, we may just have to do that. <laughs> <laughs> 
Do you want to do the last question? Do you think we kind of answered it? Oh, yeah. For the last question. Oh, yeah. What makes you the most proud of clients who work through their own traumatic experiences? Do you have any thoughts? Um, I think what makes me the most proud is just that they have decided to empower themselves and take back their story. Um, you know, I think anytime someone is able to take back their story when they have felt like a loss of control, I feel like that is just something that I'm so proud of. Um, because I know that again, the skills that they have kind of learned for themselves, that they are able to utilize those skills with whatever they come across in the future. And um, it allows them to see their life in a different lens. And I think like, I constantly talk about this, this lens, right. And adjusting their lens. And I think like anytime you've had an experience that has, you know, changed your lens, it's really important for you to realize that those can be interchanged. Um, And I think like anytime you can tell your story and you have been able to find where you were the victor in that experience, where you were the survivor in that experience um, and what takeaways that you have been able to take from that experience, what, um, what lessons you have learned and not saying like, you know, Oh, the lesson is that I would never put myself in that situation. No, like what lessons I mean, like what, what ways have you grown from that experience? Right. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. Which ways have you learned to have that experience serve you in your current place? Right. Um, I think like anytime a client is able to do that, I'm just like, I love it because it's like you you plant these seeds. And I think the other part of being a good clinician is realizing that you may not see those seeds grow. Yeah. Or you might see that they start to like grow like, you know, little peaks outside of the, the soil, but they haven't grown into that full, you know, tree. But mm-hmm. you have allowed someone's space to have the skills to water those seeds. And yeah. you know that, it's going to continue to thrive. Like, and, and not only that, if, if they need to do some more care, like they now have the resources and skills to do that. And like, that was, that's what makes me the most proud. Mm-hmm. What about yeah. you? I think what makes me the most proud, um, very similar to you is when, when, when clients take their story back, when they take their power back, Um, I had one client who had experienced, um, sexual, sexual assault and she was stifled by that. I mean, rightfully so. And she came in and told me this story one day and I was amazed at the way she just decided like, fuck this. I'm not about to, (laughs) this is not, this is not going to define me. She like came in and told me this story and I was like. Oh my goodness. Like, girl, are you proud of yourself? Cause I'm proud of you. Like, you know, like I'm proud that you just decided what, like you just decided like, this is not, I'm not going to keep living like this, Yeah, you know? And I, I think that when 
And I also am proud when, when people just merely come to therapy and decide like, I don't know what I'm going to get, but I'm tired of ignoring this thing, this heavy load that I'm carrying. Like I'm tired of, of allowing this heavy load, you know, weigh me down so much that I cannot live the kind of life that I deserve. Right. And so when people realize that, that they deserve, people often will say stuff like that person need therapy. And I heard a clinician say online, she said, we need to shift that from saying that people need therapy to people deserve therapy. Yes. And I think when people start to recognize that they deserve to be sitting in a therapy seat, you know, when they realize that they deserve healing. I think that is so inspiring. I can't tell you how inspired I am about for my clients almost every day. Like literally I am. And when, when, when clinicians say I learn just as much from my clients as they think they're learning from me, it ain't no lie. Like I can't, we're in a lie. Cause literally every day I'm like, I had a, I had a client say something to me the other day and I was like, Oh, I'm writing that shit down because (laughs) like, Cause, and I didn't say this to them, but I'm like, cause that been fucking me up too. And I didn't know what to do. (laughs) Like, I didn't realize how much about this thing was getting in my way. And you just opened up a new perspective for me that maybe I can, I didn't say this to them because obviously I think that's, uh, that that may be a little bit inappropriate, but for me, it was like, what I did say was like, I am so proud of you that you decided to dig a little bit deeper outside of the session, right? That's when the work happens. Outside of that session, that client decided to do some more work. She brought that, 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 you know, discovery to session. And I was like, amazing, like amazing. You know what I mean? Because you didn't have to do that, but you, that you decided that there's something here and I need to dig a little bit deeper. And that's, scary but it's also empowering and that's 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 what I'm often proud of is that that they amaze me when they you know come to to therapy come to session and they are afraid to do the work but no it's the time to do the work you know like that I can't tell you like every day almost almost at least once a day I'm like amazed at the work that the clients are doing. And, and, you know, you obviously get some clients who don't do the work they should. And again, they'll get to that because that's the work, right? The work is figuring out that the work needs to be done. But yeah, I would say that that's something that I'm often inspired by for sure. I love that. Yeah. Well, so this is our episode about trauma. This going to be long. (laughs) (laughs) It is, but I think we cover, you know, a lot of different things. So to kind of end it off, what is one way that you are choosing to soar these next couple of weeks? Hmm. Um, I think I am going to choose to soar by just digging a little bit deeper in understanding the power of telling your story. I think I've always known that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think like we said in our wrap up session, like I get something every day from a session. I was not expecting to get some of the things that I got today. And I think that that deserves a little more time for me to just sit with and not Mm -hmm. to, you know, try to figure out what to do, but just to sit with what transpired today and and how that was transformative for me and 
what I want to do with that information next. So that's one way I'm soaring is just sitting. One thing I struggle with is just sitting with those feelings and not feeling the need to intellectualize. And I just, I want to just sit with what transpired, what it did for me and what I want to do next with that information. So that's, that's one way that I'm going to soar this week. What about you? Um, I think, you know, I am going to, um, really focus on my intentions for 2024. Um, I have some things, so I am a pound away from my goal weight. Look at you. I'm very, very excited about that. Um, and so I am really going to be, I've been trying to be more intentional of celebrating, you know, how much weight I have lost and just the process of it. And, yeah. you know, I think that that's so important. Um, I'm also um, getting ready to work on sitting for my LCSW. So I have... I got approved by the board and all of that. And that was like a headache. Um, but yeah, I, a major one. I now have the approval to sit for the exam. I just have to pay to take the exam. And then um, once I pass, I'll just have to pay for the actual licensure. Um, but it is something that I'm, I'm going to go forward with. Um, so that is really just my focus is being intentional. And then another way I'm soaring is, Carmen, my my baby, has already started. She's applied to all of her colleges. Okay, because she was telling me about that when we saw each other at the beginning yeah, of December. So we did all of her applications. I gotta get my bestie's number. <laughs> I'm gonna give it to you. But she <laughs> applied, and so we are. We did her FAFSA and all of that. Yeah. And she'll start hearing back for. March, I think, is when she starts hearing back. But one of the colleges she applied for, and I'm really excited about this, they actually wrote her on College Board. They reached out and they asked her to apply for their honors program at the university. Because they Did they? Program. Yeah. So. Uh, wow. Um, I, I'm literally beyond proud of her. Um, mm. And so. The focus is going to be, you know, just supporting her and she's been killing it every day. She comes home from school. She's doing schoolwork and things like that. Um, So she's going to be a damn graduate in less than six months. Like, girl, Girl. sit down. Stop growing. Stop. Stop. I'm already working (laughs) on her graduate graduation party. So, (sighs) yeah. So. Right now we're working on applying to for scholarships and things like that because she is she did apply to some um kind of like Ivy League schools, um mm-hmm. some private schools. So they're a little bit more expensive. Um yeah. so I'm gonna work on with her looking for scholarships and things like that. But she just has a bright future ahead of her and she does. She's a good um, girl. Yeah, I know people always say that about their kids, but like to I just told my friend this, like to know that she was born premature at five months, one pound, four ounces, mm. half a chance of surviving, and came out of the, you know, out of the hospital with a feeding tube and she had to have surgery for a cliff palate um that was inside mm. the top of her mouth and just 
all of the different medical things that she has yeah. experienced. Um, and just knowing like, you know, the other experiences that she unfortunately had, she is just a wonderful girl. So yeah, I'm really she looking is. forward to to seeing her soar and just supporting her as she prepares for for exiting my home. I know. Ugh. So yeah. Man. So I'm preparing for that. But <laughs> but wow. while we talk about Tommy that, fly in, I man. want to say please, girl. Time goes too fast. Um, please too don't fast. forget to reach out to us on our social media. Um, our social media for the podcast is at But What If I Soar. Um, we also have our individual um, social medias for um, our, um, I think we have Instagram, TikTok. Um, what's the other one? YouTube nah, for oh, the YouTube, yes. Um, so we have all of those. We have websites. Um, we mm-hmm. always leave all of our social media um at the bottom of the episode um description so that you are able to access that. We really want mm-hmm. to engage and talk about things. Um you can also reach out to Dominique um for um, counseling. She is licensed in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you were thinking about doing some other states, but no. I am thinking about it. Not at this time, but it definitely is on my radar for sure. Okay. So she's licensed in Pennsylvania. So if you are someone who lives in Pennsylvania, she does do virtual counseling. Um, mm-hmm. you are able to access her. She's a great clinician. Um, Thank you. I also do life counseling or life coaching um, for people who have experienced trauma, but also just people who are wanting to build their resilience. Um, So I am based in Delaware, but I work with individuals who are located within the tri-state area. Um, And basically, I can work with anyone in the United States if um, that is something that they are wanting to get connected with. And then I do have a license for therapy. However, I am not currently taking on therapy clients. So I think that that's something important to just highlight. Um, But like I said, Dom is doing actual therapy. She's really good. She has a great background in trauma. She also experienced in substance abuse. Um, Mm -hmm. So really experienced in that really great resource. And like Dom said at the beginning of the podcast, if you connect with her and you don't feel like, like she doesn't feel like you guys are a great fit, she is really great at connecting with other resources. Um, So you can even reach out to her to do like um, an assessment, like an intake Mm -hmm. to see if she would be an appropriate counselor for you. But if not, she can definitely connect you with other resources. Yeah, I always do like a quick, like 20, 30 minute consultation, free consultation, just to get a feel for what you're looking for, what you're trying to work on that way, you know, because I want it to be a good fit too. You know, I want it to be a good fit for me and I want it to absolutely be a good fit for the client. So yeah. Correct. And so also we do snippets of the podcast episodes. So we do them on our YouTube channel. We also do them on TikTok and Instagram. Um, okay. So if a clip speaks to you, you know, definitely reach out, comment, like, um, just kind of engage. Um, if you have any interests that you want us to cover and discuss, 
please let us know. Um, we are some individuals who are very open. We're very fluid. Um, if you have people that you would like us to actually bring on as guest speakers, um, you know, please let us know that is something in 2024 we are actually going to be trying to implement a little bit here. Um, so just let us know if there's someone or a topic that you would like us to cover. Uh, we are very um, great at just being open about that. And then as always, please make sure that you like, comment, and share. Um, we do this because we know that we have something to say. We want to get out and support people. We want more individuals to see clinicians who look like us um, mm -hmm. being out and kind of talking about our experiences, but also making all experiences feel more normalized and not as taboo and give people access to resources that um, sometimes they don't feel like they are the clientele um, that, mm -hmm. that are being targeted. So that is right. definitely something we want to share. Um, we're on, I think at this point we're on most, um, subscription based podcasts, um, streaming mm -hmm. services. So you can find us on that. Again, we do YouTube podcasts. So you will be able to view the video as well as the audio on there. And then, like I said, we do do snippets of different um, parts of the podcast on TikTok and Instagram, as well as YouTube Real. So basically at this point, you can find us anywhere. Yeah. Um, but we really want to engage with you guys and we want it to be a collaborative effort. So Thank you again for tuning in. Um, thank you again, Dominique, for being vulnerable and sharing your story. I think thank that you. it was so empowering. Um, and I know that someone who is listening in is going to feel like they too can feel comfortable sharing their story um, and sharing it in a way that they feel like they're taking it back. So I appreciate you for sharing that and being vulnerable about it. Thank you. Thanks for creating the space because I think that made it very easy. Um, you know, I think without that, it would have been really challenging. And so it's just, it's just a testament to the importance of creating space for people and creating an environment where people feel safe. Um, and so, yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> if you all didn't see she put made a heart sign i appreciate that <laughs> and everybody take a moment to wish my girl a happy birthday as well yes it's your girl's birthday, birthday. You know, i'll take all birthday. the i'll take them all to the end of the month so hey take your time you can hurry up <laughs> take your time i'm gonna be here i'll take all the birthday wishes believe it i will take all this has been a i'm excited for 37 i really am so it's our birthday all month so share the love <laughs> yes 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 <laughs> all right you all take care tune in and we look to hear from you guys thank you for tuning in and allowing us to be vulnerable together as we soar if you enjoyed this episode and are interested in hearing more from us, make sure you hit that follow button so you are alerted when a new episode drops and leave a rating and a review below. Our podcast can be found on all major podcast platforms as well as YouTube. We'd love to hear your comments and how you're choosing to soar these next couple of weeks. Interact with us on Instagram at But What If I Soar as well as on our business pages at Free To Be Counseling Services and at Social MacGyver. Let's continue ascending or gliding even amongst the turbulence.